Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green. So I mentioned on Twitter my sympathies for agnosticism, which caused some people to somewhat overreact, I think. The truth is that not much has changed. I think theism can be rational for some people to hold. I think atheism can be rational for other people to hold at the same time. The rationality of either position has never been the issue, since rationality is dependent on a range of factors that are individual-specific. Rationality comes pretty cheap. What's reasonable for you to believe might be irrational for me to believe, given my unique base of knowledge, experiences, intuitions, priors, and other factors that situate me in my unique position on the grand epistemic landscape. So what is causing me to say that I've felt a little more like an agnostic than an atheist in recent months? I guess the short answer is religious ambiguity. The world can be interpreted in various incompatible ways, and the interpreters are not necessarily violating any standards of rationality in doing so. Minimally, this is what is meant by religious ambiguity. So, religious ambiguity has always struck me as an intriguing feature of our world, one that theists need to seriously grapple with, explaining why God would allow significant religious diversity among those who strive after him in good faith, not violating any standards of rationality, is not a trivial matter. And if you think it is, then take it up with the philosophers and theologians who, over the millennia, have spent so much time and energy trying to answer this question, which is only growing more intense as humanity becomes more interconnected. Ambiguity is something atheists should take seriously as well. After all, depending on how you define religious ambiguity, there could be a conflict between rejecting theism as overwhelmingly improbable and maintaining that the evidence is ambiguous. You can't say in one breath that the world is religiously ambiguous, and then in the next say things like, there is zero evidence for theism, or all of the evidence is against theism, or the only reason people believe in God is because they're irrational. Well, in that case, then things are not so ambiguous. As for me, I think the world really is religiously ambiguous. The facts of our world, the bits of evidence for and against theism, haven't led me to an obviously correct answer. I don't feel any position being forced on me by the evidence, such that I could only deny it on pain of irrationality. So this goes beyond the minimal core of religious ambiguity. I'm saying my best efforts to judge the total balance of evidence weighing for and against theism leave me thinking that no one has a decisive case, and the main way to give the impression of having a decisive case is to ignore the total evidence, focusing solely or primarily on the facts that support your position. You put a spotlight on the things that favor your view, and do your best to minimize or otherwise cast aside the things that don't fit. It's sort of like the duck-rabbit illusion. Well, it kind of looks like a rabbit, but I can equally see it as a duck. Though in my case, I'd need an illusion that pretty much looks like a rabbit, and you have to squint a bit to see the duck. But just because the balance is not exactly 50-50 doesn't mean our situation is not still pretty ambiguous. It's much easier for me to see the world as an atheist than as a theist. It comes a lot more naturally to me. But making the case for atheism increasingly felt like an exaggeration or chest thumping. I'm not sure exactly how to put it. It just began to feel like I was slightly misrepresenting my own views by saying atheism or atheist, but only slightly. If I were to defend theism in a debate, it would still be a devil's advocate debate. If I were to defend atheism, that would be a lot closer to what I actually think is the case. I lean in the direction that God does not exist. 
but just how confident I am in that probability has waned, if only because I started from such a rock-solid place of assurance. When I first became an atheist, I thought it was like one in a billion, maybe, that God existed. Obviously, that's not an exact figure, but I thought it was very, very, very unlikely. A lot turns on what you mean by God. Most people have something fairly specific in mind. God comes with a lot of baggage. And there are certain models that I confidently reject. And others, which tend to be less specific, I feel quite ambivalent about. I don't believe one way or the other. I don't believe, but I also don't disbelieve. Which is distinct from how I feel about, for example, the more theologically laden views of God, which I disbelieve in. Not with 100% certainty. There's very little that you can rationally believe with absolute certainty. But, as I said, there are views of God that I confidently reject. Contributing further to the ambiguity, in addition to the evidence pointing in seemingly every direction at once, is the fact that we all have epistemic peers who disagree with us, not to mention much smarter people who disagree with us. There are plenty of sources of epistemic uncertainty that have increasingly led me to hold on to my beliefs more loosely. How am I supposed to alter my confidence in light of peer disagreement? How am I supposed to reckon with the inescapable contingency of my beliefs? How the f*** am I supposed to set my priors? Now, there are a number of deranged reactions to questions like these, but we don't have to slide into relativism or deny that we know anything or anesthetize ourselves with unreflective, dogmatic certainty. We can face the world with humility and open-mindedness without becoming completely untethered from what we know. Richard Rorty often spoke about a certain kind of philosopher with, quote, radical and continuing doubts about the final vocabulary she currently uses, because she's been impressed by other vocabularies, vocabularies taken as final by people or books she's encountered. Rorty goes much further in ways that I can't really get behind, but what can I say? I'm impressed by many of you. The problem is that you have mutually exclusive, incommensurable worldviews. So while there are certain answers that I confidently reject, there are many worldviews on the table where I just shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know, could be. At least for me, at this point, that feels like the only honest reaction. So religious ambiguity is one big reason. Another reason has to do with the hypothesis of indifference. For a long time, I've been warming up to the value selection hypothesis. I've been talking about this for the past year or so, sometimes in passing, sometimes directly, but I don't think the universe is totally indifferent to value. I don't know how that works exactly. I'm fairly open-minded on that point though I suspect consciousness plays an important role in whatever value selection hypothesis turns out to be correct. At least that seems to be the easiest, most intuitive way to account for a value selection effect. Seems like the path of least resistance, in a way. But that's been the shift, roughly. A move away from the purest distillation of the hypothesis of indifference towards a value selection hypothesis. In a debate between Philip Goff and Dustin Crummett, I mentioned this in the introduction. We'll be comparing a few different theories that posit what you might call a value selection effect. They factor the goodness of the outcome into the explanation of why it happened or why it exists. That it's valuable, that it's good is part of the real explanation. And without it, 
the explanation will never be complete. So why talk about those kinds of theories? Mainly because of phenomena like psychophysical harmony that are A, very valuable, and B, very improbable. We landed on this tiny slice of probability space that happens to be very good. What the different proposed ideas that we'll be talking about have in common is that they think goodness plays a role in the complete explanation. So in the context of the fine-tuning argument, Philip Goff defines a value selection hypothesis as the following. Certain of the fixed numbers in physics are as they are because they allow for a universe containing things of significant value. So notice that it doesn't specify whether a personal or impersonal force or cause or explanation, etc., is responsible for the value selection effect. The most widely subscribed version of the value selection hypothesis is theism, but there are impersonal forms of the value selection hypothesis as well. Theism has well-known problems, many of which stem from the conjunction of God's omni-attributes, a being of unlimited power with unmatched goodness. This world with this evolutionary history was not created by a being like that. When I was speaking with John Buck about universalism, I summarized my main issue with theism like this. Part of the reason I'm interested in theism is because it is kind of like the best possible outcome. Yeah. The reason I don't believe theism is true is because it is too good for the reality that we live in. Like, mm. the world that we live in does not reflect the thought that, like, at, at the foundation, there's this being of, like, perfect goodness and power and all that. I just don't think that the world is good enough for that to make sense. Like, it just doesn't... What I know about the world, it just doesn't drive with that idea. As the old saying goes, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Of course, I want theism to be true. Theism is plausibly incompatible with gratuitous suffering, so if God exists, there's a very high likelihood that there is no gratuitous suffering. That's good news. Theism also raises the probability of an afterlife. Theism is logically incompatible with the strong view of eternal conscious torment. This is all good news. I also want theism to be true because, for fleeting moments at least, I've appreciated what it might mean for a being of perfect love to exist and have ultimate power over the world. It would mean love and goodness rule the universe, not the near indifference which seems to govern it. That the universe is more or less indifferent is a much simpler and far more convincing answer to why bad things happen to good people than anything any theist has ever said on the topic. When you truly contemplate the horrors that befall the sufferers on earth, human and non-human, the cancer and disease, the violence and brutality, the floods and fires, the predation, the industrial factories of torture that we've built and are seemingly unwilling to reflect upon, and when you further contemplate that some of this has been going on for a very long time, before we ever existed, it's the closest thing to an anti-religious experience one can have. The moral weight of the suffering on earth is unspeakable. That it's the product of indifference is the only intellectually satisfying answer on offer. Of course, some people will see that as hyperbole, but for me, the only way to forget that indifference is the simplest and most convincing answer, the only explanation of suffering that leaves me with no cognitive dissonance, is to just forget the moral weight of the suffering on earth. And I've become convinced of this by reading theists and conversing with them. The majority of theists, I'm sorry to say, do not seem to appreciate the data that's in front of them. It's far more common to hear a disgustingly glib answer to the sufferers on earth from theists than it is to hear even an acknowledgement of the sheer moral weight of what they're trying to explain away. 
along with Alvin Plantinga and many others, I think most attempts to explain evil from theists are shallow, flippant, and seem to betray an unwillingness to unwaveringly look at what their god permits, what he idly watches without intervention, what he apparently didn't think was worth preventing through the subtlest alterations to human psychology or the process by which we were created. Once again, theism is too good to be true. So, rejecting theism, which is a maximalist version of the value selection hypothesis, is not equivalent to endorsing the hypothesis of indifference. There's plenty of conceptual space between those two extremes, and both have their merits, but they seem to do best when you put a spotlight on certain parts of the world and just kind of ignore other parts. Where indifference comes up short is obviously not evil and suffering, where it does exceptionally well. It's in the astonishing goodness and value of our world, some of which is wildly improbable. Our universe did not have to be this way, life permitting with a planet like ours teeming with psychophysically harmonious conscious creatures. Things did not have to be like this. There are lots of ways I could imagine the universe turning out that would have been decidedly less valuable than the way our universe turned out. The universe could have been, in the relevant epistemic sense of could, boring and uninteresting, devoid of beauty, life, consciousness, a universe with only a few particles, separated by millions of light years, that would have been less valuable, I think. But even granting life, it didn't have to be complex life. Granting complex life, organisms could have been mindless. Granting minded, complex organisms, mental life didn't have to be like this. Why not a blooming, buzzing confusion? Consciousness could have been an evolutionary residue, just a fog. Nothing but a haze of meaningless nonsense that was kicked up by neuronal activity like silt on a creek bed. Conscious life could have been like a half-remembered dream, and not necessarily a good one. Natural selection would have dutifully promoted the adaptive fitness of chemical gene machines regardless of what dreams they were having. The closer you look at the issue of fine-tuning regarding both the physical parameters of our universe and the conscious beings within it, the more unlikely a situation like ours seems to become. Further, there seems to be a generally positive axiological trajectory of the evolution of the cosmos. Once upon a time, there was no life. Then there was. Once upon a time, there was no complex life, or complex conscious life, or rational moral agents like human beings. As hard as it may be to discern general cosmic trends, I think all that is still true. So I sympathize with the 19th century philosopher Samuel Alexander, who believed that there was an impersonal force, Nisus, that was driving the universe towards higher states of being. Or with the heretical priest, Teilhard de Chardin, who saw a cosmic trajectory towards ever greater states of existence, and thought that this striving of nature would continue into the future. Alexander's view is very similar to that of Spinoza's, as well, who postulates something akin to Nisus in his own system. As Alexander put it, the stuff of reality is not stagnant. Its soul's wings are never furled. So, whether it's the evolution of human beings on Earth, or large-scale moral progress, the emergence of life, or complex consciousness, the restlessness we observe in nature, all the change, movement, and striving, does not seem blind and indifferent to value, as I see it. Tendencies in nature seem to present themselves. 
The Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy attributes to Aristotle the view that, quote, change and movement in nature should be thought of as the operation of a nisus, or a principle somewhat like aspiration, yearning, or desire, driving things to develop into what they are drawn to being, end quote. So this sort of view can make a lot of sense to someone with my views about consciousness. And I think there are potentially some connections between this and Hedda Hassel-Merck's argument from the experience of causation, specifically. So, I know I'm not going into any depth explaining myself here on this point about axiological trajectory. I'm not trying to gratuitously name-drop. It's just that these are enormous subjects that I don't know how to succinctly convey. There's just not much of a contemporary cultural reference point for these things. Not least because these sorts of ideas have fallen out of favor over the past few centuries, the 20th century in particular. Although C.S. Lewis apparently felt compelled to argue against impersonal value selection hypotheses in Mere Christianity in a chapter titled What Lies Behind the Law, albeit briefly and not in exactly those terms. So given the interestingness and complexity of the physical universe, as well as psychophysical harmony, and what I judge to be the axiological arc of the universe, a value selection hypothesis seems increasingly hard to cast aside. As I mentioned, theism is the most popular version of the value selection hypothesis, so we might consider a finitist form of theism, one where God doesn't have the standard maximalist attributes, and that doesn't seem to me to be a terribly ad hoc or gratuitously complex hypothesis. Having a powerful, reason-responsive, value-responsive, conscious agent in the mix certainly helps out a lot when we're trying to explain those valuable and unlikely features of our universe. And limiting God's power may help with explaining horrors, gratuitous suffering, evolutionary history, and so on. We don't want a value selection hypothesis that imbues our push towards the good with too much power, considering the full range of data. However, we need not appeal to a power outside our universe to get reason-responsive conscious agency and its explanatory benefits. For example, the hypothesis of panagentialism is all about ingraining conscious, reason-responsive agency into the fabric of the universe itself. And this is one of the central ideas explored in Philip Goff's book, Why the Purpose of the Universe. One can get the benefits of finite theism without running afoul of Occam's razor. As some of you know, I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that fundamental reality is mind-involving. At least I'm with Paul Draper in saying that it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. I'm comfortable with the idea that consciousness plays a causal and creative role in the unfolding of the universe. I've been fine with that idea for a while, but I've never seen any compelling reason to think it must be divine in character. And part of the impetus for my subtle shifting of opinion is sort of like, I guess I can see some decent reasons to think it may be divine, and maybe some decent reasons to doubt the non-divine alternatives. And this connects with my general sympathy to at least stage one of some contingency arguments. Now, if there is a necessary being, it absolutely does not follow automatically that it must be God or even godlike. And most of the attempts to move from stage one, contingency arguments, establishing a necessary being, to stage two, establishing this to be God, are completely unconvincing. As you can probably piece together, I'm more of a design argument fellow than a cosmological or contingency argument guy, but Kenny Pierce and Josh Rasmussen have persuaded me that there are maybe some decent reasons to think foundational reality 
has some divine attributes and some decent reasons to doubt the entirely non-divine alternatives. But there are other reasons that theism has going in its favor, even if they're relatively slight. For one, if God does not exist, I find it very surprising that nearly everyone believes in God. Of course, not everyone today or all of our ancestors believed in a monotheistic omni-god, but rather a god or gods or some kind of godlike entity or divine reality. And some kind of non-specific godlike entity or divine reality is what I'm agnostic about, not specific forms of theism. For example, I'm not agnostic at all about perfect being theism plus 15 Christian doctrines, some of which are borderline unintelligible, like the Trinity, and some of which are not at all well supported, like the physical resurrection of Jesus, and some of which flatly contradict other doctrines, like the strong view of eternal conscious torment and theism. I mean, if you can understand why God wouldn't create a world with nothing but a billion conscious creatures suffering in immense agony for trillions of years with no escape, if you can understand why God wouldn't do that, then you should be able to see the incompatibility with theism and a vision of hell that is basically just that. So, back to the common consent argument. The fact that theistic belief is so widespread is some evidence for theism. Just imagine if the opposite were true. If no one believed in theism, or anything like it, I think that would be some non-zero amount of evidence that God didn't exist. Just given the nature of theism, it would be very surprising if nobody believed in theism. So it follows that widespread theistic belief is some non-zero amount of evidence for theism. And some have objected, well, just because E would raise the probability of a hypothesis doesn't mean the opposite would lower the probability of the hypothesis. The problem with that is that it's straightforwardly false. It's just completely uncontroversial, basic probability theory that if E raises the probability of H, not E lowers the probability of H. Though we should note that it does not follow that E is probability raising to the same degree that not E is probability lowering. Still, you can't have it both ways. It seems totally obvious that if nobody believed in God, that would be some evidence against God. So it follows that because almost everyone believes in God, that we have some non-zero amount of evidence for that hypothesis. Another way to put the argument is this. Imagine you only knew one fact about the world. God doesn't exist. That's the only thing you know. You would not predict, based on that fact alone, that nearly all human beings in existence believe in some divine reality, except in Czechoslovakia for some reason. Anyway, I'm not trying to make a full-fledged case for theism or against theism or even fully defend any of these arguments. This is just sort of a 10,000-foot view of why I've shifted somewhat towards agnosticism. First, I just think the world is religiously ambiguous, in more ways than one. Second, I've been comfortable with the idea of fundamental consciousness for a while, and maybe can appreciate some reasons to think it has some divine attributes, and more importantly, I've gradually moved towards the value selection end of the spectrum, which has influenced my assessment of finite theism and theism in general. Certain conceptions of God I definitely don't believe in and think, I mean, I'm very confident they don't exist. And then there are other conceptions of God that are sort of less specific. You know, once you start getting into the common consent territory of like something godlike or some divine reality, well, then yeah, things seem a little bit more counterbalanced. Not exactly 50 50, balancing on a razor's edge. It would actually be really strange if you didn't at least slightly lean one way or the other. 
like your credence is exactly 50%, 50 50.00000%. I think some people have a harder time identifying where they lean, or they say they don't lean either way, but that's not to say that they are on that razor's edge. Maybe it's just indeterminate, it's hard to figure out what your credence is, it's just somewhere in this particular range, or maybe on a few days of the week you kind of lean this way, it looks more like a duck, other days of the week you lean that way, it looks more like a rabbit. So it's easier just to say, yeah, my credence is somewhere in the middle. Okay, so the question of whether this is a big change. I don't think this is a dramatic change, and I don't think it's a sudden change. Were I to encounter myself from not even just a few years ago, but from like eight or nine years ago, railing against theism, I would probably not disagree with the general thrust of what I was saying. I would just say that I was working with an excessively narrow conception of what theism was or could be. Those highly specific forms of Christian theism are indeed false. I was right about that much. Yet there may be a supernatural, divine reality. So with that, thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.